Hi, I'm Joel. This is Creativity Pulse, a podcast where we dive into the cool waters of creativity and cruise around some creative thinking, evolution of ideas, and innovation that currently exists in a variety of industries and businesses, big and small. For those of you just joining us, there are two weekly episodes, the first with a guest and a second weekly roundup. This links the week's conversation to some creativity stuff. It includes some practical hints to help you exercise, flex, and build your creative mental muscle. We're back again. I'm with my guest from last week, and this is the second part of our conversation. My guest is Dr. Colin Summerhays, a world-renowned climate scientist, an author, a public speaker, and a fully paid-up advocate for a better world for all of us. If you read a lot of books on innovation, evolution of ideas, that sort of stuff, they have one of the guys that I've been reading at the moment, a guy called Nick Trenton, calls it the aha moment, when you just go, that's it, where all of that prior thinking, you've used your systems thinking, you'd have divergent thinking, convergent thinking, all of the theories that we now understand how to use, how to apply, how our brains work. We're again, getting used to and more knowledgeable about how that side of life is working. It sounds like the scientists, uh, there's a bit of sort of experimentation there. There's a lot of talking, there's a lot of um, even more experimentation, then there's comparing huge amounts of data. How do the scientists actually, is there a process that they actually go through for and talk about, are we looking for particular patterns? For instance, why would someone think that it was really important to study tiny shrimp or with plankton falling to the bottom of the ocean and and that meaning something? We've seen a, a real evolution from what I would call single silo science where single discipline science, where the, the, each discipline, uh, you could say it was represented by a gigantic silo. So the biologists were in one silo and the geologists were in another one and the meteorologists were in another one. And they, they actually didn't speak to each other. There was no uh, real integration between them. There was some talk about multidisciplinary research where, let's say, in oceanography, you would go on a cruise, and on the cruise there would be some biologists, there would be some geologists, and there would be some physicists, but they wouldn't actually be working together. They would be using the ship separately for their own purposes. But uh, 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 since um, uh, 1986, what was formed was the International Geosphere-Biosphere Program. So the clue is there, right? International geosphere, biosphere. So you're bringing your understanding of the way the Earth works with the one understanding of the way life works together. And uh, what we uh, what we now see is that we that everything is connected, and we have to study if we want to understand the way the world works. We have to uh, understand it by integrating the different disciplines, so that we're no longer thinking in a in a separate silo type way for each discipline, but we're connecting them to understand the problems. I mean, the climate cycle is connected to the hydrological cycle, which is connected to the nitrogen cycle, which is connected to the weather cycles. You know, all of these cycles are interconnected, and and, and those cycles are what makes 
makes the world tick. Do you think science is effectively struggling to keep up with the innovations, those really creative innovations in technology like satellites in sort of scientific thinking in that respect? You know, we're receiving so much data. Are we actually able to see the patterns and understand and make something of something as complex as climate change for a better way of terming it? And so we have to understand it. it we have to understand this complexity. And so it's now interdisciplinary science, not multidisciplinary science that we are doing. So the key, the key phrase that expresses all this is ESS, it's Earth System Science. We're seeing the Earth as a system. And if you want, and it's a system in which all of these things are integrated, the lithosphere, the biosphere, the cryosphere, which means the ice, the, the, you know, all of those spheres are, are integrated together. So it's very exciting. I understand that you've written quite a number of books, a broad range of books. Uh, Give us a sort of brief overview of that sort of um, the topics and where the two questions that I'm really interested in, where do you find the inspiration for those books? And do you have a particular process that you go through from start to finish? Tell us about that. Well, I've uh, either written or edited something about 12, 12 books. I'm not going to tell you about all of them, but let's just focus on... Actually, one of the ones I, w- I want to tell you about first is um, I was giving a lecture on the oceans at the uh, British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting. And when I'd finished talking about the oceans, a lady in the front row said, could she ask a question? I said, yeah, sure. She said, my son is really interested in the oceans, but we can't find a book about oceanography. (laughs) So like a fool, I said, well, I'll write one for you. (laughs) And with colleagues from Southampton, um, we produced a book, uh, Oceanography, an Illustrated Guide. This was in 1996. And uh, it, it was a big seller. It was it, it was a, a really well received book because it because it was it had lots of coloured illustrations in it which helped, and lots of different scientists contributed to it to um, be able to take lots of the information that I had been made aware of or uh, over the years uh, to produce a, a book on the history of Earth's climate. So uh, I did. Uh, it took me five years and twenty fifteen. I published a book, uh, Earth's Climate Evolution. Now, my reason for doing that is because it was quite clear that climate change was uh, becoming a a big topic. Do you think that scientists do do a good job at explaining this to people who, you know, take it two-thirds of the people in highly developed countries don't go to university, so it doesn't mean that people have no education. It just means that people don't understand the, you know, if you spoke to them about Charles Law, Boyle's Law, they'd be clueless. Um, They don't need to do that as a marketing manager in a large pharmaceuticals company. Uh, Do you think that scientists across the world, especially, say, climate scientists, struggle to get the, the need to do something across to people effectively enough in ways that they can understand? 
It's a very interesting question. I mean, like I said earlier, a lot of my colleagues, scientific colleagues, um, don't have the time to uh, go out and talk to the general public about the implications of their research because their noses are so close to the grindstone because, uh, you know, they want to make progress in science. And that's what they get paid for. You know, their their promotion depends on how many scientific papers they can produce in scientific journals. I'm, I'm, I'm different, you know. I mean, I, I, I haven't been actually um, doing science for some years now. It's interesting what you're saying about scientists are paid to be scientists they're not paid to be marketing marketeers or anything like that um one of the 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 tragedies i think of this was that you know save the planet uh there's a certain sort of hu- um, arrogance in humanity it smacks of some something that's wrong i don't think the planet itself needs saving it will save itself it does certainly doesn't need humans in order to survive um do you think that there's a problem with two questions do you think there's a problem with how science markets itself in that respect and do you think that science has to change its internal value system so that the focus of science is not purely to provide scientists with scientific information but it's also to provide the general public with scientific information, allowing the general public, who are generally pretty good at making advised decisions or making intelligent decisions? I I became uh, interested in the management of science because it seemed to me that it wasn't enough just to do good science. It had to be, you know, you had to be... uh, it had to be managed in a particular way. You had to have a manager who could bring the money in so that the guys who wanted to do the science could get the science. And that meant you needed people like me who could tell a good story to the funders so that they would wake up, you know, and say, oh, yeah, this, this guy seems to be on the right track. Maybe we should shovel another couple of million his way uh, because his institute is uh, really coming on, you know, because of the, that sort of the leadership that they're getting. So, I think you have to think of yourself in as as, as sort of multiple personalities. You have your scientist uh, creativity uh, part of your scientist, but equally you need you need creativity on the management side so that you can figure out how the heck am I going to get all the money so that these guys can really do what they need to do so that they can push that envelope even further forward? And and to me, that management side of things and, you know, packaging the science up and displaying it in such a way that it can attract people who are not scientists but have big bags of money is actually a really you know, important uh, ability that you need in in science, and, and in in a sense, you've you've got to be a good scientist yourself, in order to be able to appreciate the science that other people do, so that you can package it in a creative way, to uh, you know, to sell it to those who are going to give you the money. So that to me, that's 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 been a, a really important part of my career, and it seems to have worked all right. <laughs> So, so basically what you're saying is that there are the advocates out there, the people who 
are able to they, – they're not scientists themselves. George Monbiot, for instance, um, he earns his living out of wordcraft. He's a, a journalist. So – but he's in tune enough with the science or is in tune enough with enough scientists who can explain the science to him in a way that allows him to then relay that information to the public in – a way that the public can engage. I mean, even just the simple name of his book, Heat, you know, that makes you sort of interested. You're not necessarily, it doesn't, it alludes to many different types of subjects. Um, science can be shrouded in many words that simply terrify people because they have no idea what they mean. Do you think that the world is moving? My opinion is is that everybody's now a specialist and the world is short, short of generalists. Um, I consider myself to be very much a generalist. And I think a lot of people of my generation, I'm early Gen X, uh, are very generalist. The world nowadays seems to be much more focused on specialists. Do you think that that's a, a good or a bad thing? The one thing I know about myself is that I am a generalist, that I I like to see the big picture, whereas many of the scientists who worked for me or with me and uh, remained, you know, wedded to their science, uh, they like to really follow one thing really deeply. Uh, and it's, it's the whole story, you know, you you learn you can learn more and more about less and less uh and every, you, you end up knowing everything about nothing uh or nearly nothing but this is the kind of thing that will get you a fellowship of the royal society because you you've pursued one thing right to the bitter end and and discovered you know why bubbles form at the ocean surface or something uh really esoteric like that uh, and i've never seen myself in quite that uh, sort of picture. I, I've worked in a number of different careers uh, in in my history. You know, uh, working in oceanography, then uh, moving to work in, in Exxon. That's interesting that you say that. I earn my money out of transitioning highly technical people, engineers, manufacturing people, um, IT people through the transition that they need to go through from highly predictable systems into highly unpredictable systems, i.e. people, and understanding the psychology of humans is very, very different from the mechanics of a, a laptop or a machine that's standing in front of you or a scientific lab. Um, I think science could probably do with more people who are able to do that. And again, relaying those ideas that scientists find difficult to articulate outside of the terminology of science for the lay person, say. Um, I think that's, a, I would agree, that is a highly creative uh, situation that you need to be in. I know you have done the creativity test and scored a very respectable 69 on that side of things. You're from England. Who would you choose as your most creative person? Now, I also appreciate that uh, you've been 
alive for quite a while in some really interesting and very cool times. So you'll more, I'll allow you to choose more than one, put it that way, and give us a brief sort of explanation as to, to who that might be and why. Well, in the in the UK, you know, there have been some pretty creative people in recent years. Um, Richard Branson strings to mind. Uh, obviously, a very creative individual. Um, it was uh, James Dyson, you know, the Dyson vacuum cleaner man, pretty fantastic. Uh, equally on the on the science side. Uh, you know, there are any number of fellows of the Royal Society who are um, immensely creative. I was thinking in particular of people like Lord Rees, who's the, uh, I think he's the current Astronomer Royal, and a man who thinks very widely, very broadly. Uh, Lynn Margulis, who is a biochemist, really brought in the importance of the um, uh, microbial world uh, to uh, an understanding of how the world works. So she was another very brilliant person whose uh, books and and uh, uh, mean an awful lot to the rest of us. I think also uh, her husband uh, was his name Carl Sagan, the the astronomer, was another brilliant. He, now he was another scientist who was uh, capable of performing on the world stage, you know, because he, he wasn't just a, a good scientist. He was also somebody who was a great communicator, very able to put complex ideas across in a simple manner. This is where people like Attenborough and Cox and Lord Rees are are important because they, they are able to paint the big picture and make it understandable in a way that uh, illuminates it for the rest of us. I mean, that sounds like a, exactly what science needs. Well, it comes to me to thank you very much for being on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll have you on as a guest in the future. Have a look at our website, by the way, where we're building up some interesting stuff all related, of course, to, yep, you guessed it, creativity. You can even take a free creativity test and find out how creative you really are. Takes about three minutes. You can also find some creative ideas generators to kickstart your creative motor. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joel. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what do you do?